Holy Spirit, you're welcome here and ask that you help us to understand that scripture and live according to it and know you better. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to welcome, first of all, those of you at the 11 o'clock congregation, middle schoolers, high schoolers, all of you. Thank you for joining us, people at home. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Uh, most of us have, at some point, heard some version of the phrase, I'm warning you, right? Or this is a warning, or this is your last warning. We've heard it from a teacher or a boss or a parent. So like, how many of you parents have ever said that to your kids, right? How many of you, when you were kids, swore that you would never say that to your parents, to your kids, when you were parents? At 11 o'clock, middle schoolers, high schoolers, how many of you get irritated when your parents say that to you? And their hands will all be up, I'm sure. I'm warning you is not a phrase we like to hear. Uh, We are preaching through the Bible in 10 weeks, and we've come to the part of the Bible called the prophets. And last week, we saw how after God got the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he gave them his law, which was intended to mold them into an alternative society grounded in justice, mercy, and love, who spread God's love and better way of living to the whole world. But as soon as they get into the promised land, they start, they rebelled against that law. Eventually, the nation divided into two. The northern half was called Israel. The southern half was called Judah. For centuries then, God sent prophets because the kings of these two places, Israel and Judah, some were good, a few were good. Most of these kings were horrible. So God sent prophets, 18 in all over the centuries, to warn, to bring a warning to the people to change their way of living. And the prophets, the thing about prophets is nobody likes prophets, right? They were very intense. They're kind of harsh sometimes. So, for instance, the prophet Amos called the women of Israel the cows of Bashan. So, didn't go over well, right? Um, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says to the people in Jerusalem, see how the faithful city has become a whore. Like, whoa, right? Like, that is not church talk, Isaiah, right? And if I read Ezekiel chapter 23, I might get fired because it's so racy. And, and this is the second time, second week in a row that I have referred to a racy Bible passage, which means you will all go home and read it. It is the only way I can get some of you to read the Bible. So I'm just doing my part. Some of you may be turning to Ezekiel right now to read it. Um, the prophets were harsh, but they also always pointed to God's love. The prophet's job was to do two things. Comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And I'm hoping this sermon does a little bit of both. Because through the prophets, a loving God is pleading with his people. Stop hurting yourselves and others. Stop doing things that shrink your life. You're missing out on my bigger, better way of living. Now the problem is, we usually ignore warnings, don't we? Like maybe a little bit like this picture here, right? Do not climb, play on, and around pipe. How's that working out? (laughs) Right? That's kind of how we are with warnings. And the prophet's whole job was to warn. And everything the prophets warned Israel about comes down to two things. They had basically one message about two things. Everything, they said, boils down to two things. The first warning was against idolatry. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, They have set up their detestable idols to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. And what's going on there is the way that Israel would worship the pagan gods is sometimes they would do child sacrifice, sometimes they would have sex in a pagan god's temple with temple prostitutes, right? That was kind of where their idolatry had led them. Now we hear that and we go, well, that was clearly wrong. 
But sometimes our idols aren't things that are clearly wrong. Sometimes our idols are good things that we have turned into ultimate things. So for instance, tomorrow, many people will go to school or work where they will sacrifice the best of their time and their effort and even put family and friendship at risk to worship the God called success. There's a place I go to several times a week where the walls all have mirrors and there's exercise equipment. And the priests and priestesses in this temple all wear spandex, (laughs) except for me, because it's not a good look for me. All to please the God called physical appearance. Relationships can become an idol if they're excessively clingy. Growing up in eastern Washington, I got to hear both kinds of music, country and western. (laughs) It's the only kind there is. And I love one song title is awesome. If you can't live without me, why aren't you dead yet? That would be an unhealthy, clingy relationship that has become an idol, right? And again, these things can be good, but if we can't be happy without them, then they're an idol. And the problem with idols is they always let us down. If success is our idol, we're, that, can, we, that can evaporate. It can be gone. Money, we can always be just terrified that we don't have enough. And our individual idols can create cultural problems. So, for instance, a culture obsessed with success, people are going to kind of get cutthroat with each other at school or at work and maybe trample on people because they want to be successful. In the passage we read today, Jeremiah goes to the temple. God says to go to the temple, and he just blasts people as they're coming into worship. Right? It'd be like if I stood at the doors as you were all coming in this morning and said, woe to you, you brood of vipers, right? And then the greeter would say, welcome to Bell Press. That's kind of what's going on here. And Jeremiah says, do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And what's going on there is the Babylonian empire was about to invade. But the people were sure they were safe because they had the temple. But that is not, that's an idol. That's not a real relationship with God. That's religiosity. That's superstition. That's just kind of going through the motions. That's that, and that kind of religiosity where God's job is to make me happy and comfortable and successful, not to change me and challenge me and grow me and transform me, that shrinks our lives down to me and mine. And when your world is small, everything in it seems big. So every little thing just freaks us out, right? So God says, don't trust in your idols, your religiosity, trust in me and me alone. The second thing the prophets are always on about, and that God warns everyone about, them and us, and it's everywhere in the Bible also, failure to care for the widow, poor, and the alien or foreigner. The Bible word for that is justice, which unfortunately in our culture is a bit of a politicized word right now, which is too bad because it's actually a Bible word. And the Bible uses that word over a hundred times. Jeremiah says, if you do not oppress the alien, that is a foreigner or an immigrant, the fatherless, in other words, vulnerable children, or the widow, who then as now are often poor and powerless, to your own harm, when we don't seek justice, it harms us, then I will let you live in the land I gave your ancestors forever. Implication being, if you don't do those things, I'm going to take the land away, which we'll get to. God says, following me is about way more than doing religion. Following me is about letting me heal you and then through you heal the world. And this is for all of us, every age, every stage, retired people, middle schoolers, high schoolers. At the end of the sermon, I'll give you, toward the end, I'll give you an example of how that can look in real life, 
but it's for all of us. And I, it's not just a verse or two in the Bible. It's everywhere. Last week, I showed you some slides of just a few of the verses that talk about this. And these will be in the transcript of this sermon, or you can take a picture if you want of these slides. Here's a partial list, and it's only partial, of laws in both Old and New Testament commanding us to care for aliens, foreigners, immigrants. Here's a partial list in both Old and New Testament about commands to care for the poor. Here's a partial list in both Old and New Testament about racial justice and reconciliation. No small themes these in Scripture. There are over 300 verses on, in both Old and New Testament on this, more than almost any other topic, including money and sex. Over and over again, God says some people are having a really hard time. Help them out. Not a hand out, a hand up. Some people are born into bad family dynamics. Some people are in failing schools. If you're born into that, it's going to be really hard to make it. When I was doing college ministry, one of my students, I'll call him Brandon, this awesome, awesome guy, he, was, he was, grew, up, grew up very wealthy, super good looking, super athletically gifted, very smart, awesome family. Like he won the genetic lottery, right? Well, one year, two of his friends, their mothers died, and they didn't grow up with dads, so they lost the only parent they knew. They weren't wealthy. They were struggling to pay for college and all of that. And, and one day, Brandon was talking about this, with, about his friends to me, and he said, Scott, I'm starting to think, I'm, I mean, like, I'm just starting to think, do some people have a harder time in life than others? And I said, Brandon, everyone has a harder time in life than you, right? Like, we're all in awe of your genetic lotteriness, Right? Now, as life went on, he had some heartache too, but that's a good example of how if we're not around poverty and its causes or people who are struggling, we can forget it's out there. And God says, I care about these people. Help them out for their sake, but also for your sake. See, God's concern for the marginalized does not mean he doesn't love the rest of us. He does. And because he loves us, he warns us to live a bigger life than just me and mine for our own sakes. In the book of Isaiah, the people say to God, why have we fasted and you haven't seen it? In other words, God, we're doing our religion. I mean, I'm going to church, you know, like I'm here at 945. What do you want? Right? Why aren't we experiencing you? Where are you? Why doesn't it feel like we're connecting? God says, this is the reason right here. On the day of your fasting, you exploit all your workers. You can't fast as you do and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to set the oppressed free, to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter. And commentators all agree the Hebrew there for wanderer means immigrant or refugee. And then if we do these things, here's the promise. If we do these things, this is what God promises. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. In other words, you will then experience me. God says, if all you're doing is your religious thing, you'll experience me some, but I am the God who sets people free. I am the God who heals and transforms. I am the God who redeems and renews. I am the God who sets the captives free. So if you really want to experience me, if you really want to experience me more and in a more powerful way, meet me there because that's where I'm going to be. And until we do that, our experience of God will be weak and anemic. Which is why as a church, we support with both our time and our money, Kid Reach, Jubilee Reach, Eastside Academy, Auto Angels, Center for Champions in Bolivia, Ninos Con Valor, in, or Center for Champions in Rwanda, Ninos Con Valor in Bolivia, refugees in Greece and Lebanon. To obey God, yes, 
to help others, yes, and for us to see Jesus in a bigger way. Thank you, Bell Press, for doing all that. You're a great con- congregation. Thank you for doing it. Through the prophets, God warns us about idolatry and failure to seek justice for the sake of others and for our own sake. Those are the two things the prophets say over and over again. But as I said, the problem is we kind of ignore warnings, don't we? Um, just, just this week, I read about a radio contest where people sent in the, the most ridiculous warning labels that they'd ever seen on products. You know, one was, you know, warning, do not fold the baby carriage while baby is still in the carriage. Like, really, seriously. One of the winners was an iron-on t-shirt patch that said, warning, do not iron while wearing shirt. Right? Which I thought was funny because actually just last Sunday I got here and noticed my shirt was wrinkled. So I actually did that. I ironed it while I was wearing it. It worked. Hurt a little bit, but it worked. We don't follow warnings. I don't follow warnings. We don't like to be warned. But here's the thing. God warns us because he loves us. And God's warnings always include two other things other than the warning. Two other things. Even the harshest prophets always include these two things. God's warnings are always accompanied by love and a promise. If there is no love and there is no promise, it is not a word from God. Even the harshest prophets have love and a promise. Right? And there are two ways we tend to respond when we are warned. Some people feel super guilty and beat themselves up. Other people are just fine with themselves, no matter what damage they're causing around them. Right? Which means some of you right now are feeling all kinds of guilty about idolatry and have I done enough for the marginalized, right? And others of you are perhaps irritated I'm talking about this at all. Or you're thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me, but I'm glad my spouse is hearing this. Not that you would ever think such a thing. But God instead asks us all to pray two things. All to pray two things. God, show me my sin. And then God, show me your love and promise. He warns us because he loves us and wants to steer us away from the things that harm us or will shrink our lives down and steer us toward the things that will fulfill us and give us lasting joy. And when God warns us, he often does it in three ways. In three ways. First, God will touch our mind. And by that, I mean maybe you'll hear a sermon or you'll read something or a friend will say something to you, right? And maybe it's a challenging word and maybe you didn't want to hear it, right? But, but God calls us to think about it and to wrestle with scripture about it. And don't just dismiss things that we don't like to hear with things like, well, that's just your interpretation, which I've done before in the past. And unless we know why that interpretation is wrong, unless we can articulate why it's wrong, we are basically admitting we haven't done the work to wrestle with scripture ourselves and we really don't know, but I don't want to do what you just said. So I'm going to just say, that's your interpretation. That's intellectually lazy. And I've done it, but God says, no, wrestle with it. If a challenging word comes to you, wrestle with it. Ask me about it. Second, God will touch your conscience. Here's what that does not sound like. When God touches your conscience, it does not sound like you dirty little scumbag you. Right? That's not God. All right? You rotten person. No, no, no. When God touches our conscience, it sounds more like this. How did I become the kind of person who yells too much or lies? I don't want to be this person. I know God has more for me than this. I want God to help me be more than this. God will touch your mind, your conscience, and then if all else fails, not always, but sometimes God will touch your circumstances. Now, most of the pain in our life is not sent by God. It's just a result of living in a broken, fallen world with broken people, right? But sometimes God can use our circumstances to steer us in a better direction. And sometimes I think God even sometimes sends those circumstances. 
to steer us in a better direction, which is what he did with Israel. Right? For centuries he warned them, which shows how patient he is, but they didn't listen. So finally God says, therefore I will thrust you from my presence just as I did your fellow Israelites of Ephraim. And what that's referring to is after centuries of warning and the people ignoring, God finally uses the Assyrian Empire to conquer the northern half of Israel, right, as kind of a warning to the rest of the people. Judah sees that, and they kind of shape up for a while, but then they go back to rebelling against God. So then God uses the Babylonians to conquer them and take them into exile for 70 years. The prophets had said over and over again, God had said through them, your right to the land is not absolute. Your right to the land is not absolute. I made you a nation so that you could do justice and show people who I am, and you're not doing that. You're following idols. You're failing to care for the poor and the marginalized. Therefore, I am taking the land away from you. You don't get to be a nation anymore. See, when they were slaves in Egypt, God fought for them to get them out. But when they started to oppress other people and turn to idols, God fought against them showing that he is not a tribal deity. He's just on the side of justice wherever it is. But even the exile was still love. Even the exile, those 70 years, was still love because God was purifying them through the exile. And when they came back 70 years later, never again did they turn to idols. See, the people who warn you are the people who love you. If people don't warn you, they don't love you. They'll let you just run right off a cliff, Right? Without God's warnings, I become distracted, disoriented, disconnected, disenfranchised, dysfunctional, disabled, diseased, discombobulated, basically just dissed, right? But God says, I am here to call you up and call you out and call you back and call you home to me. And I'll never give up and I'll never give in and I'm never going to let go because I love you. And the more we grasp that, the more we want to change because our motivation changes. It's not duty anymore, it's beauty. It's not obligation and duty to obey God. It's beauty. We are obeying because of the bigger, beautiful, better way that God is showing us. A friend of mine recently was struggling with a temptation that he'd given into in the past and didn't want to give into again. And I'm not going to tell you what it was because I want you to fill in your own temptation in this story. And he was praying about this while he was working out. And he got one of those thoughts that he knew wasn't, wasn't him. It was God. And it said, this is not the battle. This battle with temptation, this is not the battle. I've got a way bigger, more interesting battle for you to fight. I've called you to contend for the hearts of the younger men that you work with, to show them what it looks like to live, to be a man of character and integrity, to show them how good marriage can be when you love your wife the way God tells us to love our spouses, to show them what joyful fatherhood looks like. That's the battle I've called you to. This battle with this temptation, this, this is peanuts. This is just in the way. It's just getting in the way of the much more interesting battle that I have for you. It made that temptation way less appealing. It wasn't duty that helped him obey. It, it was the beauty of God's bigger, better, cooler thing. Later in the book of Jeremiah, God says, The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. That's not duty language. That's beauty language. That's relationship language. And it points to Jesus who 500 years later, the night before he was crucified, took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. 
clearly pointing to this passage in Jeremiah. And he died to pay the penalty for our sins. And he lives in us through his Holy Spirit. And the more we experience Jesus' love, not just in our theology, but in our hearts, the more we will want God writes his law on our hearts and will want to follow it because we know he loves us and trust his commands are there to help us thrive. And the way we get that into our hearts is through prayer and listening for God the way my friend did when he was working out. Worship that focuses us on God and always asking God to show us the bigger, cooler, better thing, more beautiful way he's pointing us to. When I was growing up, my maternal grandmother had this jar of petrified cookies. They were actually petrified. And I know this is a very weird story um, (coughs) from a very weird family. Um, My great-great-grandmother had baked some of them in the 1880s, and then my great-grandmother had added to them, and they're shaped like shoes and hearts. One is shaped like a cash register. Very elaborate, right? Hard as a rock, but, but, but beautiful. Well, growing up, if my siblings or I so much as looked at the jar of petrified cookies, my mom and grandmother would say in unison, don't touch the cookies, right? Even as adults, if I'd look at the cookies, it'd be like, don't touch the cookies, Right? But the first time when my, when my wife and I were dating, the first time she met my grandma, Christina noticed the cookies and said, oh, can I touch them? And I was like, oh, no, no. Right? But my grandmother handed her the jar, took the lid off, and let Christina handle the cookies. Like, I never got to touch them once. When I told my siblings about it, they were indignant. And they said, she touched the cookies? She touched grandma's cookies? I said, yes, boldly. Right? Right? <laughs> Nobody had touched those cookies since Benjamin Harrison was president. (laughs) Here's the point, because you're all wondering. (laughs) That was the most fun those cookies had in 140 years. (laughs) And I'm sure when they got back into the jar, they said to each other, that was fun. We should get out more. (laughs) For that matter, that was the most fun my grandma had ever had with those cookies. God's warnings are not like my grandmother's warnings about the cookies, meant to keep us hermetically sealed, right? Meant to protect the cookies and keep them inside the jar and confine the cookies. God's warnings are not meant to confine our lives and make them small. Quite the opposite. God's warnings are to get us out more, to love more, to engage more, and move toward God's bigger and more beautiful way. A woman I know was addicted to shopping. She would never call it an addiction because it wasn't alcohol or drugs, but it was. She shopped when she was bored. She shopped to feel better, right? And and our culture encourages it, so it didn't seem bad. She even made sure her kids had uh, designer, matching designer tennis shoes to go with every outfit they had. And the result was bondage because there was no financial margin for her and her husband because she was shopping all the time. Well, she started to volunteer at her kid's school, and she met a student there I'll call Larry, who was in trouble with the law for stealing. His family didn't have a lot of money. Both parents were working multiple jobs just to survive. So his mom would buy the cheapest clothes possible. But when Larry showed up at school, the other kids would make fun of him for his cheap-looking clothes, so he started to steal in order to fit in with the other kids and have the same kind of clothes. So if you're in high school or middle school, like, here's a great way to do justice. What would have happened if those kids in Larry's school, instead of making fun of him, had made friends with him? Maybe he wouldn't have stolen. Well, God touched this woman's mind as she thought about Larry's predicament and just kind of thought, ah, there's some unfairness here, right? And then God touched her conscience, and she began to realize that she had helped to create Larry's problem. 
Her captivity to shopping was part of a larger cultural captivity that was hurting Larry, making him feel like he needed to steal to keep up with everyone else, including this woman's kids, who were dressed so nicely. Her private sin had public consequences. Plus, it was wrecking her circumstances because they had no financial margin. So she stopped buying such fancy clothes. Just bought normal clothes. Stopped buying the latest electronic gadget. Stopped shopping out of boredom. And then she and her family had way more time and way more money because she wasn't shopping all the time. And she used the extra time and money to help Larry and his family. Helped him with his homework. Got to know his parents. Built a relationship. Invested in him instead of in shopping. And the result was Larry did better in school. He stopped stealing. She made friends with Larry's family, all of which were way more fulfilling than shopping ever had been. She had an idol, consumerism. She was not doing justice. But God warned her, and she responded, and the result was a bigger life. Not out of duty, but because of the bigger, more beautiful thing God wanted to do with her life. So what might God be warning you about this week? What idol might he be trying to pry your hands off? Where might you be able to do some justice in your workplace or neighborhood or school? Where might God be warning you? Ask him. Say, God, show me my sin, and then show me your love and your promise. Because God doesn't warn us to condemn us. He warns to transform, renew, inspire, and set us free. Through the prophet Isaiah, God says this, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be as wool. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and the glory of the Lord will be upon you. So Jesus, thank you that you are the God who warns you. Warn because you love. So God, help us to hear this week your warnings, but also your love and your promise. Lord, help us to step into those. Help us to let go of our idols and instead love mercy and do justice and walk humbly with you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.